0: You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Herodimus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Joining us this hour is Gene Bauer, president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. Gene has been hailed as the conscience of the food movement by Time Magazine. He and Farm Sanctuary remain solidly committed to their mission of ending cruelty to farm animals and promoting compassionate living through rescue education and advocacy efforts for twenty-five years jean has traveled the nation campaigning to raise awareness about the severe abuses of industrialized factory farming an ongoing topic of 21st Century Radio, as well as our unhealthy food system resulting from it. This causes misery, as we have recorded many times on this program with wonderful educators. It causes misery to animals, animal workers, the environment, and ultimately the consumer and human health. Jean, thank you so much for joining us
1: Absolutely. It's great to be with you.
0: Well, Farm Sanctuary's work is so impressive, and I think it would be interesting to our audience if you told them how you began this work so long ago and what you did at the very beginning of your effort.
1: Sure. Well, we started back in 1986, so this is our 25th anniversary, and back in 1986, there was not a lot of attention being focused on factory farming and our industrialized food system. So I felt it was important to see firsthand what was going on. So we actually started visiting farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses to document conditions and take pictures and, and videotape. And we would literally find living animals thrown in trash cans or living animals thrown on piles of dead animals. And we could not leave them there, so we started rescuing them. And at the time, we were operating out of a donated space in a row house in Wilmington, Delaware. So we didn't have a lot of space, so we, quick, we rehabilitated the animals and placed them in good homes. And then as time went, it was clear we needed more space, and we eventually got a farm up in Watkins, New York. We have 175 acres there. We also have a visitor program to encourage people to come up and and see the animals. We also have a farm now in Northern California. But in the early days, it was an all-volunteer organization, and we actually funded the organization by selling vegetarian hot dogs at Grateful Dead concerts and other festivals.
0: I saw that and I went, oh, great, a man after our own heart. And and so when you began this work, I mean, there were so many of us who came into this awareness at the same time in the 70s. You know, they could call us the, the children, the boomer children or whatever. But I think the awareness was almost within our culture and many people became vegetarian. But that didn't seem to impress the rest of society. How have things changed in these 25 years?
1: Well, I think in this past 25 years, people have really come to recognize the importance of our food choices, not only for ourselves, but for other animals and for the planet. You know, in our country today, we are facing huge health problems. And, you know, heart disease and cancer are the top two killers, and the risks of both can be seriously lessened by shifting towards eating plants instead of animals. Um, And also, what's happened over the past several decades is that farming has changed significantly. And animals are now being confined in cages and crates, and they're packed so tightly they can't even turn around or stretch their limbs in many cases. And they're packed by the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands on these factory farms, and they generate enormous quantities of manure, which then uh, pollutes the environment, gets into waterways. And animal farming also is inherently inefficient. It requires lots and lots of resources to grow meat, milk, and eggs instead of just eating the plants directly. Uh, The United Nations has also done a report talking about how the livestock industry is one of the top contributors to the most serious environmental problems we're facing uh, on our planet today. So how we eat has profound consequences for ourselves, for other animals, and for the environment. And I think as time has gone with the Internet and with more and more information available, people are starting to to see uh, the way these animals are treated, and it doesn't feel right, and people are shifting away from eating factory farm products. And increasingly, people are shifting towards eating healthy plant foods. And, and that's, I think, really the best nutritional advice, is to eat whole foods and mainly plant foods. And, and we're, I think, right now in the midst of a burgeoning food movement where there are farmers' markets popping up and growing, there are community-supported agriculture programs, there are community gardens. And so I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the future. Um, and as people become more aware and make choices that are more aligned with their own values, I think we're going to see enormous shifts. And I think we're we're beginning to see that now.
0: One of the things I wasn't aware of until reading your work, I mean, I've been doing this my whole life as well, of bringing on experts who are involved in this work or joining others in various local campaigns. But most people in our audience may not know that farm animals are excluded from most state anti-cruelty laws. I mean, this is exceptional. We're talking about some 9 billion land animals a year that are killed to be consumed or thrown away as waste product?
1: That's right. It really is astounding. And, you know, most people want to believe these animals are treated with some basic decency and, and also want to believe that the laws apply and protect these animals. When in fact, In most cases, these animals are excluded. They're excluded from many state anti-cruelty laws because normal agricultural operations are exempt. And normal agricultural operations are practices that the industry adopts and considers to be appropriate, no matter how cruel they are. So you have very bad practices with animals in cages where they can't even turn around or stretch their limbs, and that's considered normal. You have animals that are routinely mutilated. Egg-laying chickens, for example, have parts of their beaks cut off so that they do not peck each other and and injure each other in their overly confined, cramped conditions. Uh, Pigs have their tails cut off, and this is all done without painkillers. So these are now normal practices, and they're completely legal in most states. And then also at the federal level, there's the Federal Animal Welfare Act, but it excludes farm animals. So the largest number of animals that are raised in our country are excluded. And then when it comes to the Humane Slaughter Act, which, ironically, is the only federal law that pertains to the humane treatment of farm animals, um, that excludes chickens and turkeys. And chickens and turkeys comprise the largest number of animals that are being killed in our country. So the laws are extremely inadequate, and uh, hopefully we can, we're, we're starting to see some changes in the laws.
0: Well, I, I saw that you all had this recent victory for laying hands.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Beginning in 2000 to 2002, we started working on initiative campaigns where we go to the streets in various states, start collecting signatures to put measures on ballots uh, for popular votes. And we've done this in three states now, Florida, Arizona, and in California. And in each place, citizens have overwhelmingly voted to ban some of this cruel confinement. And the three primary systems we've looked at are gestation crates, which is how Breeding pigs are kept, and these are two-foot-wide metal enclosures where the sows live their, practically their whole lives, unable to turn around or go outside or, and, and barely move. Uh, veal crates, which is how young calves are being raised for veal, where they're chained by the neck in small crates for their whole lives. And then battery cages for egg-laying hens. And these are small-wire enclosures that are lined up in rows, stacked in tiers in huge factory warehouses that can find egg-laying hens so tightly they can't stretch their wings, each bird is given less space than a sheet of paper to live their whole life on. And so we've got these measures on the ballots, and people have voted to ban them. And we were in the process of collecting signatures in Washington State and Oregon to do another initiative there. And the United Egg Producers actually agreed to come to the table, and they agreed to support federal legislation to outlaw these barren battery cages and to give the hens more space.
0: And and so, I think, you know, that it's so important to understand, and I think for anybody in our audience who has never looked at pictures, and I can promise you that rather than I describe them to you, you should see them. Go to www.farmsanctuary.org. Again, www.farmsanctuary.org. You have done a magnificent job at Farm Sanctuary in, in making this information so available. And you go through the hens, the cows, the pigs, the fish. I mean, all of the kind of living animal Life that we consume as practice rather than really understanding the consequences not just to the animals but also to ourselves, the environment, and I have to say to our conscience, you know, to the whole way in which a civilization does or doesn't progress.
1: It's so true. What we do to other animals says more about us than it says about the other animals, actually. Of course. you know, Mahatma Gandhi said, "You can judge the moral progress of a nation by its treatment of animals," and I think that's really true. When you have animals that are so helpless and so much at our mercy, and when we treat them so badly, um, you know that that's not that's not good for anybody. And I think it, it it requires us to be callous. It requires us to lose our empathy and our conscience, and that's a real problem.
0: It is, and we see it in the way wars are waged because people become unconscious from the very start, both from how we go about looking at what's on our table to how we might treat others that are the other. To me, it's a syndrome of other, that if it's not us who's having pain, it's not pain that matters. And yet when you look at the systematic agreement by workers, by factory owners, by agribusiness, by our Congress, by the lobbyists that say this kind of torturous, systematic ruination of the animal kingdom, human life, and the environment is quite okay. So let's talk about where the quite okay comes from. Is it economics?
1: I think economics are a big part of it. Um, I think habits are another part of it where you know on these farms bad has become normal and the animals have been increasingly confined uh, and and it's all it, it, if they're confined and they're not exercising they put on weight more quickly so that's one of the economic reasons that these animals are packed so tightly uh, and they're also completely controlled their whole lives are controlled. Well, they're they're
0: not treated like sentient beings. They're treated like things, like they're just objects.
1: Precisely. They're treated like production units, uh, like pieces of meat from the day they're born until the day they're killed. And the goal of industry is to get them to grow as fast as possible so they reach market weight as fast as possible with as little cost as possible. Right. So confining them is one way to do that. Feeding them antibiotics is another way to do that. And so antibiotics, half of the antibiotics produced in the U.S., are fed to farm animals.
0: Which then goes into our bodies yep. and our waterways.
1: Uh, yep, absolutely. And then, and then we also have the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, new pathogens right. that are emerging in the system.
0: Right. And, and so when you started looking at all of this, I mean, as a fairly young man, you've committed your life now 25 years and more to this. Obviously, more and more people... Have contributed to it. Is there any? You know, I always think it's our children who, if we can educate them. I mean, you show a picture to a child at the age of six or seven of how pigs are treated or cows are treated, and they'll never eat meat again. But getting that picture into the school system is almost impossible.
1: Yeah, it's true. We've uh, you know, back in the early days, we when we were first starting, we actually went to schools and, and we spoke at some classes, and mm-hmm. we almost got some teachers fired because sure. you know they. The, some of the parents were farmers. but um, Well, you know,
0: before you pass that point, let's talk about that for a minute, because Maryland's a big farm state, and we have Purdue chicken, and it's a big problem here, and we have Johns Hopkins, which is a whole other issue of experimentation on animals. Um, when you talk to farmers, I mean, there used to be, was there a different ethic long time ago? When is that long time ago before factory farming?
1: Well, I think it's been sort of a constant but gradual shift towards Commodifying animals and seeing them just as production units, not as living creatures. And um, you know, there's, you know, I, when I was visiting farms in Florida when I, we did our first initiative, and I spoke to people at the university there, uh, they agreed that was what was missing today on farms is pigmanship, You know, this mm-hmm. idea and understanding of animals, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of that shifted significantly after World War II, uh, because. After that time, we had lots of resources in this country, we had lots of inexpensive oil and capital, and it went towards constructing these large industrialized operations, and as that happened, people became more removed from the animals, they became more removed from the land, Uh, they started seeing, you know, sentient life just as commodities, and and that has continued, and it's sort of reached its epitome, I would say, Uh, although I also do believe that we are now starting to see a shift back to more sensible practices. And, and this is with small farms, with farmers markets and so on, starting to spread around our country. So uh, I think it's gotten really bad, and, and now there's awareness and there's a recognition that this is unacceptable and it needs to change, and there is some change happening, although there are still your, your large industry groups that are going to defend the current practice because they've invested in it. And uh, it's profitable.
0: Well, exactly. And they, of course, have the biggest bucks and they go ahead and they lobby Congress. And any sensible bill that might come through at the state legislature or at the federal level generally gets bounced right back out of committee before it even gets to the floor, which is something I have experienced in a lot of campaigns in my life. Look, we're going to take a little break, then we're going to come back, and I want to talk about some of the wonderful things you do in terms of people being able to participate in adoption, what they can do if they see something, how to help with education, and some other particulars. If you're just joining us, I'm Zoe Hieronymus, and our guest is president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. You can find them online at www farmsanctuary.org. If you don't mind, Gene, for a moment, I'd like to come back to something you said in the very beginning. You were one of the very first groups of people to get into farms and factory farming to be able to film and document what was going on. Can you share a little bit about that time period in this work and what that was like?
1: Well, you know, it was pretty rough, as you can imagine, going into these places. And at the time, the industry was a little bit less wary of visitors. So right. I was often able to just walk in and take videotape and pictures of what was happening. And, you know, it was horrible to see the way these animals were neglected and, and mistreated, the way they were suffering, the way they were routinely denied veterinary care. If they weren't worth very much, they would literally be discarded. Uh, and I also felt very bad for the workers. You know, can you imagine what it would be like to work in a slaughterhouse where for eight hours a day, all you're doing is cutting the throats of animals. It's a violent, bloody job. And I really wish nobody had to do it.
0: Well, and I think, you know, post-traumatic stress, and um, Gay Bradshaw joined us on that. We talked about even the elephants who have post-traumatic stress just from the way the world is. And we see this with workers in these kinds of environments. I mean, it's it's no different than taking a life unmercifully so it has to affect people and i've read studies of the kind of trauma that they suffer and that they leave these factory farms but so many are migrant farmers and they have they believe they have no other resource to work
1: no it's true it's very sad and um, also the workplace is very dangerous so oftentimes these people are injured and they don't feel that they have recourse so they are injured and um, it's just bad all the way around
0: and so when you were doing this, I mean, the surreptitious filming, which you would have to do today, because as you point out now, even to go to a feedlot, you, you you have to sign in. They need to know who it is. You have to go. You have to be escorted. I mean, to go film even the way they drag these poor deer, cows, the downers, and just drag them suffering and dying to be slaughtered, it's, 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 it's indescribable. I mean, I don't, to be quite frank, I am so in awe of you and other people that do this work day after day, I think I would have an emotional breakdown.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it is very hard. Uh, one of the things that, that made it manageable for us at Farm Sanctuary is that from time to time we were able to rescue animals. Let's talk and about
0: that and how you do that and how others in the listening audience who might have acreage or might know somebody who has a farm or may themselves have an interest in helping as volunteers, what, what they can do.
1: Well, at Farm Sanctuary, we rescue these animals and and take care of them at our farms, but we also have an Adopt-a-Farm Animal Program. So if anybody has acreage and is interested in adopting animals, we would love for them to contact us, and they can do that through our website, which is www.farmsanctuary.org, and we'll send you an application. And we want to make sure that when we place animals that they go to good homes, as you can imagine. But if there's people out there that have acreage and proper facilities, and in an interest, we would love to hear from you.
0: Share yes. with us, as, as an example, because I was on your website, I had an opportunity to really tour around and see how some of these animals came to you. But pick one of the stories for our audience and explain how the animal was found and then what happened.
1: Well, I'll, I'll mention Opie, who uh, I actually rescued from a stockyard in upstate New York. And this was a number of years ago. And uh, I was visiting the stockyard, and I came across this young calf who was left for dead in an alleyway. And it was a freezing day, and he was very young. In fact, he was still wet from after birth. He was sent to the stockyard on the date he was born. And he was freezing to death. And so I asked the stockyard worker what's going on with this calf, and he told me, well, I have to bury him later today. I said, well, what if I take him off your hands? And He said, sure, go ahead, take the calf. So I took the calf to a local veterinarian, and his temperature was so low it wouldn't even read on the thermometer. He was dying of hypothermia. Uh, But we brought him back to the sanctuary, got him warmed up, took care of him, gave him necessary fluids and other nourishment, and he recovered. And he ended up living with us for more than 18 years and weighing nearly 3,000 pounds.
0: Wow. And now there's some people, I'm sure, in the audience who are thinking, well, you guys are talking like, you know, they're just a cat or a dog. And yet... I think that's important to talk about for a moment because there are millions and millions of households that have cats and dogs and birds and rats and cat and mice and, you know, all their little animals. And nobody would ever think of killing that animal and eating it or killing it alive and eating it or dismembering it while it lives. Yeah. And yet that is, in fact, what happens in these enormous factory farming systems.
1: You're absolutely right. And, and I think the reason is that when people get to know these individual animals whether they're cats and dogs or other animals, you understand that they have emotions, that they have uh, personalities, basically, that they have likes and dislikes, that they develop relationships with other animals and with people, but they're not really that different than us. And the same could be said of cows and pigs and chickens and turkeys and these other animals that have been unfortunately exploited terribly and then slaughtered and then consumed in our country for decades or for more than that. So one of the messages of Farm Sanctuary is that these animals have feelings just like cats and dogs and other animals. And that's a big part of our sanctuary work, is to encourage people to come and meet these animals, get to know them, look into their eyes, spend some time with them, you know, watch how they interact with each other and with us, and get to know them, connect with these animals. And and when that happens, uh, the idea of killing them doesn't appeal very much. And, uh, you know, most people have empathy. Most people care about others. Most people don't like to see cruelty. And, uh, unfortunately, when it comes to farm animals, most people just don't spend much time with them.
0: And don't know. And at the same time, we've had this incredible decimation of the small farm, really the backbone of our agribusiness in this country. Um, yeah, as I joke and many real serious scholars have said, yeah, it got all replaced with methamphetamine labs. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, there's really these horrible stories. I'm going to have a guest on who's written a book about the demise of a, a town in um, Iowa because of that. I'm being told we have to take a little break. So, Gene, you hold on to our audience. Go, in the meantime, to www.farmsanctuary.org. That's www.farmsanctuary.org, and we'll be right back. So, I wanted to come back, Jean, to something you said about education and how we can make changes. For those in the listening audience, you mentioned that, for instance, you have an adoption program. What else does your website present that they can utilize, whether they're school teachers or grandparents, in really helping the next generation appreciate that they can make a change that's profound on all levels?
1: Yes, well, on our website, there's lots of information about what happens to animals on farms. So for people interested in learning more about our food industry, that information is available. We also have information and heartwarming stories about individual animals who live at Farm Sanctuary uh, that people can check out. And we have pictures and videotape of both you know, happy animals at Farm Sanctuary and of unhappy animals that are being mistreated on factory farms. And there's also lots of information about plant-based eating. Uh, and shifting away from our typical American diet, which is very heavily laden with animal foods and which is bad for animals and it's terrible for us and terrible for the environment. So there's information about shifting our diets and eating in a way that is healthier and also that is more aligned with our values. And I think that's a very important point is that most people are unwittingly supporting a cruel factory farming system without really thinking very much about it. So we encourage people to think about their food choices and to become mindful of them, and then ultimately to make choices that they can feel good about that are aligned with their interests. And, and that would mean, I think in most cases, if not all cases, shifting away from factory farming and towards eating more plant foods.
0: Now, the industrialization of our food supply came along with the large uses of insecticides and fungicides and all these leftover products from aluminum and other things out of World War II. And when you look at even the devastation to our topsoil, people say, well, you know, you can't get the nutritional needs that you have, either it's protein or, or minerals from... The plants, and then they make an argument for. But if you eat an animal who has eaten some of these things, you get what you need. So, for somebody in the audience who might not really appreciate that, even if they reduced meat eating to once a week, what a difference it would make in their health and this process.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, I've been a vegan since 1985, and I get everything I need from plants instead of animals. Some of our are the best athletes ever have trained as vegans and done done their best. Work and their best times as vegans. For example, Carl Lewis, the Olympic athlete, he did his best times uh, in track when he trained as a vegan. Uh, Dave Scott, who has won the Ironman Triathlon more than anybody else in in Hawaii, uh, trained as a vegan. So you know you can get everything you need by eating plants instead of animals, and uh, you can also perform at a very high level athletically that way.
0: When you talk about adopting farm animals, I want to come back to that for a moment because you do so much of it. You mentioned that you have two different sanctuaries, and I I did want to make one point. You know, there's a lot of sanctuary work going on for elephants and chimpanzees and all kinds of abused animals around the planet, and sanctuaries are, thank God, popping up here and there. But I've interviewed a number of sanctuary um, founders, and and we all sort of agree that we don't want the creation of sanctuary to be a long-time business. It's kind of like the short-term interval until we can make living a sanctuary.
1: (laughs) I love the sound of that, yes. You know, our sanctuaries, we have two of them, one in Watkins, New York, and one in Orland, California, and these basically have been set up to take care of refugees of, uh, Mm -hmm. of an abusive system. And ideally, we would love to put ourselves out of business so we didn't have to rescue right. animals from these cruel systems.
0: And when uh, you, you know, say you have this, you have the 175-acre farm in upstate New York and 300 acres in Northern California, how many animals and what kind of animals are on the farms?
1: Well, between the two farms, we have nearly 1,000 animals right now, and that includes cows, pigs, chickens, turkeys, ducks, geese, sheep, and goats. And we have some donkeys at our farm also out in California. And these animals, once they come to us, get to live out their lives. Uh, They're our friends, not our food. And people are welcome to come visit. We have events at the farms. We have overnight cabins where people can actually come and stay overnight at Farm Sanctuary and wake up and look out off of their porch and see pigs out there rooting in the soil and see cows out grazing. They can see happy animals on a very peaceful farm. It's a, a very beautiful experience.
0: Do the cows get milked? Do the goats get milked? Is cheese made? Or is this simply a place where these animals rest until they live no longer?
1: This is a place where the animals simply get to be who they are. Mm -hmm. And so we don't generally need to milk them. And the reason is that the only time that a cow would have milk or a goat or other mammal would have milk is if they've given birth. Right. And then they start lactating. And that's why on dairy farms today, these cows are forced to have a calf every year who's taken away from them and then the calf is raised for veal if it's a male, and if it's a female, will be raised to become a milking cow. And then the cow's milk is taken and sold for people, of course. Um, but on, at farm sanctuary, if an animal comes in pregnant, uh, she'll be allowed to give birth and, her, and nurse her young. So um, those are times when we would have lactating females. But otherwise, uh, they're not bred, and so they're generally not, uh, they do not need to be milked. Although we have gotten some from dairy farms, who have we've had to milk temporarily uh, until uh, they their udders dried out? Um, because you know, once you have a lot of milk, you have to you have to be milked.
0: Just out of curiosity, what's your feed budget a year?
1: Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly, but it's uh, it's probably uh, over half a million.
0: Yeah, that's what I would guess. I remember interviewing a small sanctuary in one of our states. I can't remember which one, and her food budget was 300,000 a year. This yeah. was for horses, I think it was. It was a sanctuary for horses. And and so when we look at this extraordinary, I mean and you have a wonderful staff of people and your board is just so diverse and so involved, if somebody in our audience wants to make a donation, explain where that donation goes.
1: Well, people who donate to Farm Sanctuary help fund our shelter work and our direct animal care and rescue work and our placement work for the Adopt a Farm Animal program. They also help fund educational efforts and advocacy efforts. Uh, in addition to caring for animals, we want to raise awareness and encourage citizens to eat in a way that is more sustainable and more humane. And we also want to change laws to protect animals from cruelty. And we've had some success there. We've been able to pass laws to outlaw some of the worst confinement systems in a handful of states. And so we're now working on federal legislation, and we'll keep pushing for that as well. So uh, donations to Farm Sanctuary Fund our rescue, education, and advocacy efforts.
0: Now, I understand that there's going to be the first national conference to end factory farming for health, environment, and farm animals. Who can go to that?
1: Oh, we invite everybody to come. Come, Anybody who's interested is welcome to attend. And we have a website, which is www.factoryfarmingconference.org. And our intent is to raise awareness about this problem to engage people, and to empower people to go make a difference when they, when they go home from the conference.
0: As you pointed out, CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, Community Gardening, Small Sustainable Farming, is really enjoying a renaissance in this country. And, you know, I always sometimes wonder why we don't have sort of Bond investments for these kinds of things, for earth care careers, you know, for animal care careers. Is there is there any part of the world that you can point to and say, look, these guys do it right? Is there a model for right the right way to do this?
1: It's a really good question, and um, unfortunately, I cannot come up with a model Uh, uh, in 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 any nation. I think that we're seeing some models popping up in the United States in certain communities where we have community gardens and we have even in some schools there are gardens. So uh, there's starting to be some really good examples that I think will continue to spread at, because they make so much sense where people are getting healthy food, they're getting local food uh, that's very affordable, and they feel good about it. You know, It's, it's really nice to go out in the garden and, and pick your food and eat it. It's something really satisfying about that direct connection to Earth and to our sustenance.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, a few years ago, I was trying to get a, a book to a publisher and I hadn't heard from them. So I assumed it was a rejection. And I said, OK, I know what I'll do this year. Let's start a farm at. And so, indeed, of course, the publisher came back about 3 weeks after I'd started it and said yes to this book. So there we are building a farm ed at the, with our hens and we're having eggs and you know, it was a, it was a it was a big learning experience. And now we have hens who are no longer laying eggs and they're just going to stay with us until they live no longer. And Fair somebody enough. said to me, "But that's like having pets." I said, "Well, they're really not pets, but they're sentient beings and we love them and we take care of them." And, yeah, you know, I don't. when people say, well, what's the point? All I can say to them is, well, we care for them because they, they're alive.
1: Exactly. You know, sometimes, you know, animals just deserve to live, you know, they, and they enjoy life. And, and we can learn from them while they're alive as well. You know, if we observe them and, and we can be enriched, our lives can be enriched by positive relationships with other animals. You know, people uh, who've spent time with cats and dogs, for instance, have lower stress levels. Um, sometimes when, when cats and dogs visit hospitals, they really help people who are injured or ill or suffering. So our connection with other animals, and if it's a positive connection, can really be good for us emotionally.
0: When we look at also the relationship, this sort of trans-species communication that happens, I love that term that in trans-species psychology that Gay Bradshaw and some others um, have really brought into the psychological awareness movement is that this is a whole earth relationship. We're not just talking about how to be nice to chickens and how to be nice to pigs. What we're talking about really is the overall system in which we treat the life of the earth and all life on the earth.
1: That's so true. It really has to do with our attitude towards other animals and the earth and our relationship with other animals and the earth. And the question is, is it a relationship based on exploitation and cruelty and continuing to extract value, extract raw material, uh, or is it one where we invest, where we live in a more symbiotic way, where we are, have empathy and compassion to other animals and to the earth, and you know, frankly take more responsibility for our behavior mm-hmm. and, and behave in a way that we can feel good about because right now the way we're treating animals on factory farms is atrocious and most people say I just don't want to know don't tell me about it right and that's, that's exactly not right not taking responsibility mm-hmm.
0: yeah i've always thought you know if they just put a picture of what it really looked like on on the McDonald's hamburger of what the cow went through How many people would still line up to buy these fast food? And I've interviewed a number of people, including John Robbins, over the years about the enormous amount of um, change in agribusiness as a result of fast food, that it's basically fast food farming.
1: Yes. It's mass mass production, cheap food paradigm. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, this cheap food actually comes with some significant costs that we don't adequately account for, and and our health care is one of those huge expenses.
0: Exactly, plus a diminished life, a quality of life I mean I joke that now when we when I first became vegetarian back in nineteen seventy two I think and as a dancer traveling the country, there was never anything to eat, and no matter where you went you couldn't you had to go to a foreign restaurant basically to find some grains and some vegetables, <laughs> whereas today it's true you can go anywhere in this country and eat a healthy vegetarian diet and a good one
1: yes, it's getting easier and easier it's so wonderful there's Lots and lots of new vegetarian restaurants in Baltimore, in New York, in L.A., uh, and even in places like Omaha, Nebraska, you can get vegan food. So this, mm-hmm. it's really spreading. It's really mm-hmm. positive to see.
0: You know, uh, I interview so many wonderful pioneers of which you are one, and one of the questions I love to ask them, from astronauts to, uh, you know, people who do film or whatever, how has this work changed you, Gene?
1: Well, you know, when I first started doing it back in 1986, I had a general idea of what was happening and that this factory farming industry was a problem. But as time has gone, my convictions have actually deepened, and my dedication to this has become stronger and stronger. Uh, But I've also, I think, become more patient and more understanding of people that are engaged in these businesses. Um, You know, oftentimes people start working at factory farms or investing in them or setting them up even because they believe it's a good thing to do. You know, farmers are hardworking people, and, and they, you know, they want to do well. Mm-hmm. So it's really about education and reaching people and, and being compassionate, even to people that you feel are doing really bad things and just you know, trying to find alternatives and 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 try to appeal to people's better natures. so well
0: and i think that's a really key thing i remember as a young activist we were always screaming and yelling at the others as the horrible things they were doing and it yeah. took some real maturing to appreciate exactly what you just said of that people generally when given the right information will make the right choice and it's about having compassion for those who have a different perspective and a different lifestyle than your own but how to find some middle ground that brings everybody to a better place
1: exactly really about finding common ground. And and I think rooting our efforts in, you know, people's better angels. You know, Mm -hmm. most people are compassionate. Most people don't like cruelty. Most people do have empathy. Most people want to live on a planet that is healthy and is not being polluted, where resources are not being squandered. Most people would rather be healthy instead of dying of heart attacks.
0: There, there's also, I understand, that you have been just returning, I guess, from Chicago, or maybe you've not gone yet. For There's an annual Walk for Farm Animals.
1: That's right. We're doing these Walk for Farm Animals events all over the country. I just came back from Chicago. In fact, I just arrived back here in Washington, D.C. today.
0: Thank you for joining us after that.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to do it. And to find out about it, people can go to the website, which is www.walkforfarmanimals.org. And you can sign up there, and the more people that participate, the better. It's going to be a really great event, a very positive event. And we're just joining together to raise awareness and to raise funds for Farm Sanctuary's work.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Everybody has an opportunity to actually take part and stand up for the the animals that can't speak for themselves. And if you were to sort of, you know, cast the fairy dust across (laughs) the nation... What would this change look like? I mean, if, if if we were really able to forecast, if you were, a diminishment of this, in, if this really this um, butchery and unmerciful treatment of animal life, how do you think that would affect other parts of our society?
1: Oh, I think it could be profound. And, you know, what I envision is a world where we're living with other animals in a peaceful, humane way where we're not killing and exploiting them for food. And the way we would be getting food is through small, local farming operations. And in addition to small farms, there would likely be more urban agriculture. And we're starting to see this. We're starting to see rooftop gardens, for example. Yeah, there's a
0: wonderful one I saw in in Brooklyn. A fantastic urban rooftop organic garden. And, um, you know, I think that all, I remember it was almost 27 years ago, I and another woman, we tried to convince the municipality in Baltimore to turn this big public field called Rashfield into an urban agriculture center. Of course, nobody understood what we were talking about (laughs) 27 years ago, but now the municipalities actually Provide land within the community and vacant lots, and there's really it's phenomenal that there's funding in our cities now to actually do this.
1: And that's very good for neighborhoods, and and it also you know softens urban areas to have plants and grass growing or or, or uh, vegetables growing. There's also a food not lawns movement where with people who have lawns are starting to tear up their lawns and plant food.
0: Right, right, which I, I have seen some beautiful demonstrations on less than a quarter acre feeding a family of six really well. So
1: Yes, you so, don't... so that's the type of agriculture I think that we need mm-hmm. to move towards, and there are small signs of it happening,
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: think we need to dismantle this industrialized farming system where we're growing tons and tons of feed crops like corn and soybeans, which are very chemically dependent uh, to feed animals for meat, milk, and eggs, and we don't need to do that. We could move towards plant foods, as smaller farms, more efficient farms, uh, more local food, more organic food, uh, and uh, just people more in touch with the land. So that's the direction I think things need to go.
0: Well, and and it is true that in all domains in which there's been this kind of nonprofit activism, I've worked most of my life in the field of healthcare and holistic health care, and to think that when I started our center 25 years ago, there was nothing like it in the country, and now you can go and get acupuncture and homeopathy and nutritional guidance in almost every major city, and even in the counties, I add, in most of the states of, of our union. And so, Jean, when you look at this work, and anybody in the audience who's saying, well, I would like to do an adoption, you mentioned you can go to the website. What kinds of animals are adopted out?
1: We have all kinds of animals. We have you know, cows, pigs, sheep, goats, chickens, and turkeys. You know, All these animals that you know, are generally seen as food, we see as our friends, and we place them in homes where they're going to be allowed to live out their lives. And um, you know, people can go to the website, which is farmsanctuary.org, and, and see some of the animals that are up for adoption, some of the animals that we care for there. And we're always looking for good homes because whenever we can place an animal in a home, uh, we're able to rescue more.
0: Does the 4-H Club of America, how, how do the, like, organized farm community respond to this?
1: Well, the 4-H and Future Farmers of America and those sort of youth agricultural programs have a different perspective than we do. Uh, they, unfortunately, teach children that these animals are basically commodities to be raised and killed. And we've, you know, talked to some kids that have been through 4-H and have really been, traumatized by it because they get to know a sheep or a Mm -hmm. pig or another animal and get connected with this individual. And then they're made to sell them to be slaughtered. And it's it's a very, it's sort of a mixed message, you know, mm-hmm. and, and children have a natural tendency.
0: To know hypocrisy to when they experience it. <laughs> I used to interview the 4-H Club every year at the Maryland Fair, and I would always say to them, I don't know how they do it. I could never have done it. I had a goat, and I had, you know, a lamb, and we didn't eat them. <laughs> not yeah. They were pets. I mean, literally, because my mother, you know, just wanted us to have exposure, and we all loved animals. I just don't understand how anybody can do it.
1: Yeah, No, I don't either. And that's, you know, one of the problems with 4-H and Future Farmers of America. Although they do now have programs where people can learn about growing plants and Mm -hmm. quilt making and other sorts of crafts. So it's not all bad, but when they take animals and and basically desensitize children to see these animals as, as just pieces of meat to be slaughtered, That is a problem in my view.
0: Mm -hmm. It's an interesting challenge that we all face. I mean, in almost every domain in which we do air work, everybody's working to create some sort of new paradigm of consciousness where the consciousness matters, where our relationship to all life is is the work. It's not something afterwards, but that is the work. The journey of how we treat the earth and how we treat each other and how we treat the animal kingdom is the work of living.
1: It's so true. And, and to do it mindfully and thoughtfully and in a way that we can feel good about that is empathetic and is compassionate and is not harmful to other animals, to our not harmful to our bodies or to the earth. And just living in a way that is aligned with our values and aligned with our interests and leaves a lighter footprint on the planet, and uh, it's it's very empowering to to, to go that direction. And uh, as you say, it happens every day. It's just the way we live our lives. And, you know, Gandhi said, you know, my life is my message. And, you know, he's also said, be the change you seek in the world. And I think it's so important for each of us just to think about how we live and to make choices that we can feel good about that are aligned with our values and our interests.
0: I, I agree with you entirely, and it's interesting because there have been different stages in my life. I've been an activist in many different fields, but there was a time that I had to, after covering current events for 10 years, really have taken the last 10 years in a very spiritual retreat and studied Kabbalah, and I've written two books, and now I'm sort of coming back out into the into the world of of doing from day to day in, in various nonprofit sectors, and I work with a wonderful farm here in Maryland called Kayam Farm, which is at the Pearlstone Retreat Center, and they have brought to it the Jewish texts of teaching about how you treat animals as well as an understanding of the natural cycle of, of how to do small, sustainable farming. They have a great garden, and they have... Anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful movement that really is happening with lots of people in their 20s and 30s and young homesteaders who are really trying to live a conscientious life. Look, we have just about a minute left. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us?
1: I guess I would just encourage people to go to the Farm Sanctuary website, which is farmsanctuary.org, and just to to recognize how important our food choices are. The way we eat is perhaps one of the most important decisions we make every day. It has profound impacts on other animals and on the earth and on our own health. And uh, just being thoughtful about it uh, and, and doing what we feel good about can make a world of difference.
0: Well, I want to thank you. And again, remember, ladies and gentlemen, there is going to be the first national conference to end factory farming for health, environment, and farm animals. You can go to www.factoryfarmingconference.org. And I want to thank you for the tremendous work you and your organization do and for taking time after such a busy day today to join us.
1: Oh, Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity.
0: 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.